Hello and welcome to Come Oga Here, a podcast about the subtext of Shrek and what it means to us here today in 2020. We are Zarina Mohammed and Seema Matu, and we are two budding Shrek experts with a passion for ogling the ogre. This episode was meant to be a mini-sode, but we've given up. We just <laughs> want to move on. I'm done. I'm finished. No more Shrek 2. Society has progressed past the need for Shrek 2. I want to be done with it. So if you do have any outstanding questions, just shout us and we'll do it in the next Cues and Reviews episode. We'll let them accumulate we'll let them ferment like a fine wine Mm. but we're today moving straight on to shrek three shrek the third but yeah okay shrek three that's how we refer to it on the streets (laughs) on the streets on the main streets of london hey what about birmingham please in birmingham you'd call it shrek the third (laughs) wow (laughs) fuck off i'm leaving I'm going to give you a quick recap of Shrek the Third and the plot in case you haven't watched it in a while because you were saying as well weren't you before we started that you felt like you'd watched this anew like you'd forgotten everything that was in this yeah my specific words were I felt like a Shrek the Third virgin I did the same genuinely I don't know what I've seen over the last few years because I literally did not remember what the fuck happened in this I was like what 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 at every scene yeah but it was so enriching and I'm so excited to unpack this shit (laughs) out of interest not to like pull it on a tangent but how do you feel about shrek the third now that you've watched it again anew has it changed your preconceptions about what you thought it was like do you feel like you had unnecessary prejudice against it because i feel like shrek the third is a little bit of like the ugly duckling of the shrek franchise it goes one two and then forever after actually it's funny you say that because when i was watching it in my mind the accumulation of thoughts that i've had over the years is that it's just this very long thing like this tedious story or narrative about shrek trying to sort of procure arthur arty and that it paralleled the tediousness of doing so with fiona in the first film and i for one found that extremely boring the idea of them being on basically a month-long walk was just frankly just so fucking boring did it feel like a rehash yeah and it felt like fucking hell i can't watch these white people walk again (laughs) i'm sorry I, i can't watch arthur the little white victim walk again for several days i can't do it (laughs) but then i watched it earlier today and i was pleasantly surprised because i don't know there was more action than i had remembered or perhaps i was sort of lulled into this false sense of fulfillment with shrek 2 where i felt like that was just like the best thing ever and didn't really pay much attention to the third child when actually i think this is as you said pretty up there as an ugly duckling Hmm. obviously not without its problems don't get me wrong there are several fucking problems we'll get into them yeah and i agree that i in my mind it took the place of like the boring one the white people walking it was just like a rehash of the first one but with a different a different far far away royal you know what i mean (laughs) the white people walking (laughs) 
<laughs> so same thing, different person. But now I've rewatched it, I'm kind of like, oh, it kind of gets deeper. I wonder if this is because the Shrek franchise gets more interesting once it's like established itself and it gets more invested in its own mythology and lore. Or are we just better at rating it now? Like, are we just better at reading into things, pulling out the little grubby bits and holding it up to the new light of day in 2020? I do think it's the latter because Shrek 2 has always been deemed my favourite because it was the funniest. But now that we've unpacked it, I've realised that it's actually completely fucking violent and there's nothing funny about that. So because of that, I went into Shrek the Third with much more of a sort of patient mindset, if you will. And I think I was able to enjoy it more because of that. I think that's quite frankly as close as we're going to get to a glowing review of any of the Shrek films. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to do the recap now. Shrek the Third is happening. It's unfolding before our eyes. We are viewers. Opening scene is Prince Charming's rising across a landscape that turns out to be a stage adaptation of the whole Shrek 2 story. It's very strange. He gets booed off stage and there's a sense that he's hit a bit of a rock bottom because he's stuck doing dinner theatre now about like the ultimate humiliation in his life. And his theatre career isn't even going well. He's not even making buck for it. He's not got much going for him. Bit of a sad case. But on the other side of town, Shrek and Fiona are still in Far Far Away. Arguably, they're equally at odds with their surroundings because they're just invested in the petty dramas of like court life in the royal family of Far Far Away. It's all a bit mad. And they set it up as like a temporary thing because it's only until the king gets better. But then he's ill and he dies. So there we are. First plot point emerges. Mm. Before he dies, he turns to Shrek and he says, you're now the king. And Shrek goes, no, 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 no. And he goes, all right, okay, fine. There's one other heir and his name's Arthur. And then he pops his clogs. Then Shrek's like, well, fuck this, lads. I'm not being king for love nor money. I'm going to get on that boat and go find Arthur. And just as the boat is about to sail away, Fiona yells, I'm pregnant. Plot twist after plot twist, I tell you. It's jam-packed, this one, isn't it? Yeah. So then he's got that on his mind. He's sailing over to find Artie. Artie's somewhere, I don't know. No, oh my... No, no, they say, they literally say, Worcestershire. (laughs) So, what's that? Yeah, you're right. How can you say Worcestershire when there's fucking American cheerleaders there? There's nothing Worcestershire about it. What do you mean? I don't understand it. I think I just repressed that memory as it happened in the film. (laughs) But you're right, I wrote it down and all. I don't get it. I just don't think Americans know how to say Worcester, Worcestershire, or any of the associated words. (laughs) It's just bizarre, frankly. The idea that Arthur is from Worcester. I mean, okay, what? So strange. Is that Arthurian canon? I'm going to find out this Arthur Tudor is that the same person no I think it's like King Arthur King Arthur I think he's Welsh you know well Arthur Tudor the Prince of Wales was born in Winchester but died in Shropshire and then was buried in Worcester that's the opposite of a fun fact Seema <laughs> I love that. That's resolution right there. That's closure. Us thinking of an interesting thing and then it just turning out to not be an interesting thing. (laughs) Anyway, so Arthur is a young guy. He's a high school teenager in an American high school called Worcestershire, which is quite (laughs) frankly a step from dystopian into like the absolutely absurd. So Shrek picks him up, takes him back to far, far away. As we know, this is a sea journey. The geography of this is very strange. So they are on the way back via sea and they're kind of like describing all the things that are wrong with like the royalty system and like the possibilities that you as king could kind of get fucked up and Arthur's like right no fuck this I'm 14 I'm not doing this so he tries to like drive the boat back doesn't he have the nightmare on the way to Arthur oh oh my gosh yeah so yeah on the way to Arthur Shrek has a nightmare about being a dad and it's like very dramatic dark room spotlight on a pram the baby's sick all over him the baby's come pouring in through the windows through the door through the fireplace it 
has purpose, symbolism. We're going to talk about it. Anyway, go to pick up Arthur. Arthur comes back. He's put off the whole idea of the royalty and then tries to steer the ship back to his little high school because he's like, fuck that, I'm not doing this either. And they just kind of crash the ship on an island and they have to walk back. And it's just very fraught. So I don't, the geography of it, don't ask me. In the meantime, Shrek and Artie are trying to have this relationship with each other. Shrek's trying to like endear him to his trust. He's trying to relate to Arthur. Arthur's like, you're an ogre, this is very weird. And they stumble across this guy called Merlin. Stuff happens. While that's happening, Prince Charming is leading a coup d'etat, a military coup on Far Far Away because Princess Fiona and Queen Lillian are just chilling in the castle with the princesses. Snow White, Stephen Beauty, Rapunzel, them lot. They're just chilling, have a tea party, maybe a baby shower, whatever. Prince Charming turns up with a gang of the odd squad, quite frankly. A gang of ne'er-do-wells. Villains. Villains. I'm trying, I just think that's a little bit like othering. <laughs> okay. So I was trying to use other words. I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> anyway, so Prince Charming storms the castle and he installs a tyrannical government and he chases the women through the sewers, captures them and is kind of like a little bit of an arsehole about it. Turns out Rapunzel is a traitor. Who knew? And so when Shrek and Artie come back to Far Far Away after this mystical, magical, I don't know, dream quest with Merlin in the woods, they they realise that something's gone amiss while they've been away and there's a massive poster for another show that Charming's doing and it involves Shrek and then they get arrested and it kind of like it turns out a bit weird. Artie runs off and Shrek is then embroiled in what I can only describe as an attempted piece of snuff theatre and I think Charming was meant to murder him live on stage but Shrek kind of <laughs> does this weird thing where he gets the audience on side by being quite like dryly sarcastic and like pulling laughs. It's all very panto. And then Artie bursts in, says, we are all the same, you villains, you misfits. I am your king now. And Prince Charming tries to stab Shrek. It doesn't really go to plan. And everything turns all right in the end. That's literally it. Oh, I forgot. Before Artie turns up, during the play, the princesses take it upon themselves to form what I can only describe as a martial arts militia. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's no better way to describe it. It's accurate, right? Can I say, sorry, can I interject when we spoke in depth about the ugly stepsister I did mention this scene where she steps out puts out her smooth young leg to entice the soldiers if you like yeah and that's the scene that you see during the uh, sort of what did you martial arts militia the militia the guerrilla warfare that the princess is engaging the guerrilla warfare absolutely the insurgency if you will I mean there's lots to say about that because lo and behold there's another ugly stepsister Hmm. I feel like it's going to be never ending but I just wanted to clarify that when I spoke about that scene this is the film that scene is inserted in continue please my friend well maybe that's a good place to enter into our analysis because we've got some thoughts about the role of women in Shrek 3 because arguably the kind of overarching narrative of this film is kind of it's like a bro movie the main protagonists are male Shrek Artie Charmin and like Puss in Boots is like the side honchos and then there is this undercurrent this meta narrative of like this subplot going underneath of like the princesses <laughs> taking it upon themselves to fight back and it feels like first of all the natural conclusion of like Princess Fiona's existence in the Shrek universe right she exists her entire character exists as a subversion of like the Disney princess mm-hmm. so like no one's surprised that they formed a militia like it kind of makes sense but I think that there are like wider feminist impl- 
qualifications and you had some thoughts about misogyny in it and I kind of want to know what they are and I've been chatting for too long I mean you're always chatting for too long but anyway there are so many things I just my mind is boggled I'm looking through my notes and one of the first things that I just can't I will never understand how Shrek is in line for the throne how is Fiona overlooked even in the scene when Harold is on his little death lily pad and he's like I'm dying blah 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 and you know take the throne whatever he's saying it to Shrek right even though his own child is standing there and his own wife can you imagine I don't get it. Your own father is dying and he calls your husband over. What are you doing? What do you do? And she's just fine with it. And I I literally don't understand it. And I've said this to you throughout our friendship. From day one, I've been like, listen, I don't get it. Explain to me how her literal bloodline is ignored. What? Is it because Shrek reads as a man that he automatically is assigned to the throne? I I literally don't understand how that's possible. I, I don't know. It feels like a huge regressive step because the first and second films especially were very much so about oh he's an ogre he's vile he's a monster this that and the other but when it comes to the throne because he seemingly presents as a cis man he's more than good enough because it's just anything but a lady I don't understand that's us so in my mind before when you've mentioned it I've kind of been quite happy to in my own mind explain it away as like oh maybe behind the scenes Fiona kind of like wasn't up for it because like she was locked in a castle so I can understand that she's a little bit resentful, doesn't really want the crown or the seat of power. Or maybe there are bylaws that they just can't get around. But I think it absolutely, on this round of watching, struck me as something deeply intolerable. I could not get past it. And I think why I've had a problem with it specifically is because, as you said, the last two films were kind of like Shrek's the outsider, Shrek's this, Shrek's that. He's a renegade, he's a rogue, he's a maverick, he's outside of the system, ogre, you know, all these things. He subverts the subversive anti-hero. Yeah. Right? Then all of a sudden in Shrek 3, the dad just kind of goes, yeah, we're cool now, we're boys. Like, you're accepted into this hierarchical, not even bourgeois, beyond bourgeois, the feudal system of the monarchy, you can accept, assimilate. Well, the king literally says, besides from you, there is only one remaining heir, even though his daughter is right there, and not even in the moment when Shrek says, I don't want to, does he look to his daughter and say, okay, Fiona, my child, who is actually in line for the throne, will you take it? Somehow there's another man. It's just presumed. Yeah. At no point does she even utter a word of consent. In a agreement with Shrek. No. It boggles my mind that she is so silent in this entire conversation. And also, if you rewind a couple of scenes back, when they're, as you said, performing little ceremonies, or they're, I don't know, getting makeovers, or what have you, oh, it's so irksome, because when giving the makeovers, the person who makes them over literally walks past Fiona, and refers to Shrek as Fiona, because Shrek now has makeup on, and I just can't. Oh, yeah. You literally walk past Fiona, whom you know is Fiona, to tell Shrek that he is Fiona and Shrek makes a point of being disgusted by that almost and says, I'm Shrek, I'm not Fiona. It, it, it's just like a so blatant, like the commentary on gender norms and the way in which sort of the woman is seen as a commodity. Right. And in addition, Fiona is like pandering to Shrek where they're being made over and things like that and she actually says, Shrek, you look so handsome. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why is everything for the benefit of Shrek. It's as if Fiona has diminished herself or resigned herself to 
domesticity to make Shrek feel better even though he's the protagonist anyway it's as though Fiona's character lends itself to Shrek but Shrek lends itself to himself does that make sense? No absolutely and I think you identify something quite important there we're saying like yeah he is the hero but still sticks man like it's still kind of like I find myself kind of catching on it a little bit because the whole fundamental purpose of Shrek is like a literal idea as a concept is that he's an ogre he's not the hero you think he is so why then does he in Shrek 3 conform to the archetype of like the male hero who is so much the protagonist that even his wife is eclipsed by his absolute central charisma and integrity to the plot yeah like why is it just like one thing subverted in like that he's an ogre Mm. it's the politics of representation right where you just kind of change the visible aspects and then nothing under the surface changes there's no structural change there's no institutional level of change it's just like that visible aspect that might kind of stick out to you was like the worst part that like makes it conservative that bit's changed but then the rest of it stays the same it just gets like a superficial makeover and I think that's what it is he's like the protagonist but he's still the protagonist that you'd think there would be in a fairy tale he's just an ogre that's the only difference it's very strange honestly and one scene that really fucking irks me as well is when they're standing at the little pier when they're about to sail off and dragons there and she makes her return in this film but only as a mother she's completely silent she only makes some noises just in reference to motherhood and her being a mother or communicating with her children or about the children and like i really feel this sort of sameness or this connection between fiona and dragon in the sense that they're entities of one another and so where dragon has become this domesticated house dragon if you like who's just a mother and a nurturer that sort of alludes to Fiona's as well and again the idea that Lillian Dragon and Fiona and the children are just there waiting and like watching their men sail off and go to battle is delusional regressive and simply heinous that moment feels like a betrayal of those characters doesn't it Mm. but then smooth transition there's like a resurgence in their true authentic selves as women that subvert and I'm using air commas here because I think that that's like a stupid trope anyway but after all of this goes down towards like the latter half of the film Prince Charming has yeah overtaken far far away he's staged his military coup he's installed some tyrannical regime he's a bit of a despot and he's got all these women Lillian Fiona and all the other princesses they're locked up in some dungeon of some sort and they're kind of like sat around hoping and then Lillian kind of goes yeah enough headbutts a wall twice breaks them out and Fiona turns around and goes okay ladies we're in charge now we are the masters of our own destiny we're driving the bus that's what's happening absolutely and I think when did Shrek 3 come out 2007 right so I mean it was a bit of a nothing year how old were we in 2007 14 yeah those were emo times those were emo times I just don't remember that era but so I had a theory about that moment and like the rise of girl boss feminism but I think like timing wise girl boss feminism maybe happened around like 2000 what 12 13 yeah I guess around like Hillary Clinton kind of time like you know yeah Hillary Clinton's presidential that moment and like I think that kind of was when like girl boss feminism really had like itself solidified in like the forefront of the cultural imaginary so I think it precedes that a little bit historically but I wonder if it predicts neoliberal culture's tendency towards 
the inevitability of girl boss feminism. Because it's not like Fiona's storming in and being like, fuck Shrek, fuck Artie, I'm the queen now and I'm dissolving the monarchy because it's fundamentally, institutionally, inherently sexist. That would be the real feminist renaissance, right? That would be like the real feminist uprising, like a complete redistribution of power in and amongst the social structures are far, far away. Mm. Instead, she busts her friends out of jail so that they can bust into a theatre and this long-lost cousin, and it's not the feminism we think it is, but it has that feel-good vibe. And I think it predicts girl-boss feminism. Yeah, mm, it's interesting because one of the most poignant parts of the film is when, I think it's Stephen Beauty or maybe Snow White, and she says, assume the position, and they all, one of them goes to sleep, the other one stands there, like, limp or whatever, and the other one just sits down or something. And they're, in essence, waiting to be rescued. Mm. And I think that level of self-awareness lends itself to this idea of imagining future girlboss energy. Yeah. But at that time, I mean 2007, so it would have been made prior to 2007. So it's scratching a type of surface, but it's also being quite polite in a way. It's kind of being a little bit submissive rather than, as you said, a very forthright feminist renaissance style where it's like fuck this this is actually mine and i'll dismantle it if i want to yeah it's not radical in any sense of the word no and i think you hit on something really interesting because it's both passive and then at the same time completely all out aggressive because they do form an armed militia but they form it in a specific way yeah in the way that you identify assuming positions like there's a moment where snow white kind of is singing a really nice song you know with the birds and it's like like whatever Snow White style singing and then it turns into like that song that oh god what's it called ah, ah, ah. <laughs> yeah that one and then the birds attack and it's Snow White's face turns like aggressive immediately and they weaponize fragility yes they weaponize their fragility their specific vulnerabilities they use that to get them ahead but in that you can take this in like a girl boss way where you're like oh my god reclaiming the feminine and like yeah cool but it's also just fundamentally buying into the same violent system that was set up and arbitrated by the men that have been oppressing them rather than thinking about this in a structural sense it's just playing them at their own game Mm. using the structure that oppressed them to climb up and assert themselves as the higher power and politically that's very interesting it's very telling i think it's also very telling in terms of like it just not being where it is right now you know exactly as we agreed on in terms of them weaponizing their own fragility but also them taking advantage of their own privileges so for example this ugly stepsister is in this militia but it seems as though she's only used for sort of brawn she's the person that they catapult off of and jump off of the one who gives them a boost when they want to storm the castle and things like that she's the, the one whose body they use when they want to entice people when they want to trick people and in that way again completely regress it's second wave feminism yeah by the bloody book like to the T the same problems that apply to second wave feminism with it being white middle class so fucking exclusive and useless to working class women black women you know trans women it's the same problems you're right I'm always right it's absolutely second wave feminism I, I just oh, it's just an eye roll moment do you know what I mean like oh, great wonderful I know it's stupid oh, you're not after Shrek too. it would seem like the bar is in hell (laughs) 
the way gender and sexuality and heteronormativity were just kind of like running rampant in Shrek 2, you really would think. Do you not feel that it runs rampant in this one? Absolutely. Because I feel like there's a comfortability there in portraying misogyny through humour and satire, such as at the end when Shrek's like to Prince Charming in order to sort of provoke him. I mean, whether he provokes him or not, I don't know whether it's just his opinion, but when he says, oh, that's a nice leotard, do they do them in men's sizes? Yeah. Things like that. And also, who who's at the baby shower? You've got a bunch of women and the characters that are perceived as queer and dragon. It's all very, very, like, domesticated whilst the men go off to work. Yeah. It's unsettling. Also, the second ugly stepsister in air commas. Air quotes? Air commas. In air quotes. I think Charming calls her Mabel. It's Doris and Mabel. Yeah. It's very sort of quick. But, as you said, at the end, in the dinner theatre scenes when sort of Shrek is being presented, the real Shrek, but there's like bellows of a monster approaching the stage. Mabel's the one that's assigned to do them. Mabel's supposed to personify the voice of a monster. Mm. It's really, really frustrating. I think that to me, Shrek 2 being so bad explains to me why they tried to do this girl boss moment, but then it undermines itself with things like that because nothing's fundamentally changed. It's not like Mm. they've just given us like a throwaway token moment where the women assemble like the Avengers and storm in and it kind of crumbles in on itself doesn't it it does and also Doris the first ugly stepsister makes a point and says whatever's happened has happened but that charming makes me hotter than July Mm. this is when they're like going through the militia stuff and I feel like that is just very like nicely put in there to try and absolve charming or whomever represents charming of their misogynistic transphobic homophobic tendencies and again it's just a bit like Oh, really? What actual purpose do these characters have other than to be laughed at or to provide a bit of physical strength to the women? Which again is a problem in and of itself. Yeah. It's unsettling to say the least. But then let's like zoom in. If we are going to have this conversation about the role of women and I guess the gender politics, the sexual politics, the like women's issues in Shrek 3. I think that does lead us quite neatly on to a massive part of this plot. But Shrek kind of fundamentally throughout this film there's like another meta-narrative of him coming to terms with the idea of him being a father and figuring out what parenthood means and you kind of get that on his end of like he doesn't really want to be a father he is quite put off by the idea of having kids so soon it's kind of like oh 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 at the beginning and then it's sprung upon him as a surprise do you think he feels it's too soon for him to have kids or for him to have ogre children at all because from what he says it appears as though he's quite reserved or reluctant to have ogre babies in fear of ruining them as opposed to them ruining him. But I'll have you know, my friend, I did some research because, as you know, I'm obsessed with a dream book or two. So I had to analyse and interpret his fucking nightmare. Well, let's get straight into that. Okay, can you describe the nightmare for me first? Like, go into detail. What happens in the nightmare? Oh my god, right. If we are going to be sat here considering the feminist politic of Shrek, I think that leads us onto the reproductive politic of Shrek because there is a fucking dream sequence let me describe to you the dream sequence he's on the ship Shrek's just found out that he's going to be a dad because Fiona has literally bellowed it to him across the water as he's leaving it's a bizarre way to communicate quite frankly but um he falls asleep and he wakes up in the middle of his dark room in his beautiful swamp house or his you know horrible swamp house there's a pram in the middle of the room he approaches the pram and as he approaches the spotlight falls on it he notices a fat little 
ogre baby in the pram. He holds it up. The baby is violently sick on him. Babies start appearing out of nowhere dramatically as his horror increases and it kind of escalates to the point of it becoming almost comical, like they're pouring in through the window, through the door, like raining babies. Oh. The horror in that nightmare is the presence of the baby in their like complete mystery and unknowableness, right? Seema, close your eyes, imagine the figure of the baby. Why? Because. Okay. Do it, yeah, the figure of the baby. It is there representing the unknown, the like dark subconscious, this like fundamental ultimate fear that is like completely unknowable. But in its horror, it's grotesque. It is terrifying to him. And he wakes up in like a cold sweat because of all these babies pouring in. And it's like kind of funny, but then also fundamentally, I don't know, it tells you something there, doesn't it? Well, I'll tell you what it tells me or what Google tells me, to be honest. Mm. So feast your ears on this. To dream of an ogre represents feelings about terrible behavior that is leveraging a bigger size to rob you of happiness people that are less intelligent than you who listen to you and then use it to dominate you or steal from you terrible behavior that is so arrogant that it cares about nothing except stopping or failing you to remain bigger than you you or someone else that wants to keep someone else down on purpose and then enjoy winning for themselves with the victim watching an ignorant mean attitude about being bigger than others to prevent them from achieving goals ignorant domination over others that stomps out innocence an ogre may reflect ignorant competition that never stops that is so interesting that is titillating right don't i am titillated indeed what do you think of that interpretation because i mean as you know dream interpretations can be a bit shonky but i don't know about this one i think the last sentence an ogre may reflect ignorant competition that never stops is quite special for me in terms of interpreting this because i do feel that shrek has a very open approach to having children when he's first told that fiona is pregnant in the sense that he's very vocal he doesn't really like them he's not really into it he doesn't really want them he's scared about the idea of ogre babies blah 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 right but also i feel like there is perhaps a latent or if not self-absorbed narcissistic fear there of competition because prior to shrek the third there are no ogres he is the only ogre and perhaps he wants to remain the only ogre yeah because as much as his otherness others him, it also makes him stand out. Do you think he clings to it as like... Yes. I think he wallows in it. And I think he does so knowingly. That now that. Well, that is a thought, isn't it? Mate, that's a corker, isn't it? A stonker. <laughs> What do you think? Do you agree? Yes. And I think, do you know what? I thought I was overdoing it by hammering home. I don't know. The, like, dark opacity in, like, the unknowability of babies and, like, what they represent as, like, this mute subject. But arguably, I think that dream interpretation has kind of confirmed to me that I hit the nail on the head because the repetition, the refrain, the fundamental that it wanted us to come away with was that like ogres represent ignorance and like what is ignorance? Mm. You know what I mean? They feel like parallel in some way. So I think there's something in that. I think so too. I don't know. I think that there's no denying that Shrek is a victim of discrimination. I'm not saying that. But I do think that he also what? (laughs) Just describe, describing Shrek as the victim of discrimination feels ludicrous. But you're right, that's what it is. It just feels 
right? He is a victim, but I also think that he profits from it. And I don't think he wants to share the goods. It's become his currency, hasn't it? So. Oh, absolutely. I was literally about to say it's become a kind of currency to him. We all know people like Shrek, don't we, Zima? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> we do indeed. <laughs> but I'm glad that we did that dream interpretation because that's given me food for thought. But aside from the dream sequence, the meta narrative, or one of the meta narratives within this film, is indeed Shrek going on a kind of journey of the soul. He kind of like has to go through this like long character development arc of becoming comfortable with the idea of himself being a father. And I know that normally what we do is we kind of sit here and be like, well, that's shitty, that's shitty by modern standards. But you know what? Even by 2020 standards, if we are going to sit here and interpret what it means to us today in 2020, becoming a father, a mother or a parent in any way is quite a transition. Societally, we hold it as like a key part of your life, like a really fundamental transition. You know, there's baby, there's young adult, there's parent, old person. Like, it's just seen as like the next step on that trajectory. And I think there is something interesting in his initial hesitance to enter into it. Mm. The way that that speaks to where he stands in relation to like the other bourgeois institutions that make up the social fabric of the Shrek universe. Mm. Because I wanted to be generous with his fear, I think is what I'm trying to say. I really wanted to hold on to it because when he was railing against his feudal overlord, Lord Farquaad, it kind of felt like a kind of fundamentally Marxist narrative. And I feel like I want to read the same thing into his hesitance to enter into the bourgeois institution of the cis-het nuclear family. Mm. And there is a really good citation I want to slip in here. There was a book a few years years ago, or maybe it was last year, called Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, which is a book by Sophie Lewis. And I've not read the book, I'm not going to lie. But I do remember the kind of mad tumble that kind of fell out of it on Twitter specifically when it came out was people were kind of like this book is kind of fundamentally against the magic of mothering like it doesn't see motherhood as this magical special sacred thing that like women should cling onto or like opt into with their consent of course and like celebrate as special it sees motherhood as something that's like a kind of labour fundamentally that should be transactionally compensated and it was like a kind of uh, I don't know neoliberal middle class white women out rage around that and that's kind of fundamentally what I'm getting at with my hopes around Shrek's fear of being a father that that is like a revolt against the bourgeois white family unit yes like it feels to me like he's fundamentally scared of like what parenthood represents socially politically rather than the actual act of like the baby I 100% agree and by extension economically financially I think his idea of being a guardian is actually being a guarantor <laughs> it is to many people and I wonder if this says a lot about like you know maybe the Shrek universe isn't so different to our own because like that is kind of like the way we conceive of parenthood in like the west right mm. it's like yeah there's an emotional element to it but it's seen very much as like a genetic reproductive relationship like it's emotional in it's like genetic reproductive connection like oh mum's like you came out my body are you with this big and like yeah that is charming but like that doesn't constitute family. Mm. That's not a singular definition of family. I mean, I say all this, and then I think fundamentally Shrek is scared of the literal baby as object. Like, the figure of the baby in his dream kind of, like, is this haunting.
magic, this spectre, this ghoul, this baby that just multiplies everywhere. Like, I don't know which one it is. I don't know where the fear kind of rests, you know? I don't know. I feel like he looks at Fiona as an ogre by design and he would look at his children as ogres of nature, as in they're naturally born as ogres, whereas Fiona has, you know, a bit of a complicated relationship with her ogre identity and because of that, you know, that's like passable. But if he gives way to ogre offspring, he's then responsible for a community of ogres who would most likely surpass him and that's not something he's comfortable with. Yes. In addition to financial, economical, guarantor-like responsibilities where things would fall on him, I think he's very, I don't know, perhaps calculated in that way. Yeah. I think it's that same problem of, like, that fundamental problem with the patriarchy and its effect on men, because it has an effect on men as well. Like, it does men over as well as it does women over. Maybe not to similar extents, maybe not to similar degrees, but let's not compare. But, like, you know, men are fucked by the patriarchy, is basically what I'm trying to say. And it's that rigid constraint of, like, our binary definitions of gender, right? Like, manhood and, like, maleness as the way, like, cis-het patriarchy constructs it. It's not, like, agreeable for everyone. And, yes, it comes with power, but that power comes with, like, the pressures of responsibility and it's restrictive in the same way and it has its ill effects. I wonder if that's what Shrek is kind of railing against in that. Mm. But then wouldn't he, like, at the beginning, wouldn't he have turned around to Fiona and been like, hey, I'm not being king, you be king? It begs the question for me. Oh, yeah, it does. Because frankly, I don't know. I find this sequence of events really quite disjointed. A lot of it geographically, characterization-wise, landscape-wise, narrative-wise, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's not as cohesive as the other two, I would say. Mm. All of them have problems, of course. I think it's unfair to try and absolve any story of potential problems. There's always going to be loopholes that's fine i mean (laughs) the nature of shrek is far-fetched but this one seems the most far-fetched it's just odd i mean you say it's far-fetched and i kind of like while i agree with you i think that's what kind of endears me to it i think that there is something like fundamentally unstable in this film it it suffers the same problems as the other ones and it kind of like those yeah they are snags that kind of stop me but then, then there are other bits that kind of pulled me in and I was like oh juicy you know Hmm. so I don't know yeah it's very contentious it's just strange yeah speaking of strange another part of the story that is just simply bizarre just because I don't know really what it's getting at is when Shrek and Artie are having a conversation and Artie talks about being bullied and sort of his woes and then sort of Shrek tries to compare his experiences with Artie and says well my dad tried to eat me what do you think of that and Artie's like you what and Shrek's like yeah and then smiles and moves on (laughs) When I was watching that, I was thinking, Han, what are we talking about here? You can't just drop that. You can't just slip that into normal conversation like that's a normal thing to say. No. Like, what was he saying? Was he trying to say that that was like he was being a typical ogre? Was he trying to point out abuse that he's talking about for the first time? What's going on? Yeah. 
He says it quite lightly. Yeah, because, mate, I was confused. But, like, I think if we interpreted that, if it happened to any one of us, that'd be quite traumatic, no? Mm. It enters the conversation in and amongst this backdrop of, like, the meta-narrative of Shrek coming to terms with what it means for him to be a father, specifically. Like, it's exposition. His experience of fatherhood was not necessarily beneficial. But in that, I think it does what so many of the other Shrek films do, which is give you a tantalising glimpse into, like, wider ogre culture and, like, these mysterious ogres and their ways that we never see at any point in the film like how do they live and like we are only given these tantalising glimpses I think that is a shame to me Mm. it was a bit of a true crime moment do you know what I mean like I just felt a bit like what's going on here hun are you trying to tell us something or is this like baseless jargon yeah is this the kind of thing that we should be citing as your vulnerability or something that humanises you ironically or what because it was so slapdash is that a word that's a word right oh yeah absolutely yeah i love the word slapdash but i think that like as we were saying about this film just kind of speaks in that register of the slapjack slapdash <laughs> slap jazz. <laughs> but i think this fits into the wider landscape of this film speaking in the register of the slapdash because you're right you as an audience member don't really know how to digest this information you don't know where it sits it's an exposition but you don't know what specifically it is exposing or how you're meant to feel about it or react against it within the plot. Yeah. Is it deep and emotional? Or is he trying to make light of, like, a fundamentally quite funny thing? Is it even funny? I mean, yeah, he phrases it comically. Like, oh, yeah, my dad was, like, giving me a bath in, like, barbecue seasoning. And it's like, oh, yeah, 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 cool. But it's very foggy. Yeah. And I think that fundamentally plays into, like, this characteristic instability that is in this film where it's like, I don't know how this is being delivered to me. And in my mind, that makes it compelling. I think it's super compelling. And I have so much more to say about it, frankly, and I know you do too. Oh, absolutely. So, we should wrap up this episode in a nice little Shrek the Third bow, Mm -hmm. because we will be revisiting and talking a lot more about the ogredom, the ogre community, class, politics. Freudian shit. I've got some stuff about structure of narrative, like super abstract, and like the fundamental role of theatre in this, because the theatre plays a very prominent role, and I wonder if it's being used as a device here. Yeah, I think it's very poignant indeed. And there's also the beginning bit with the rejection and reform of, like, the bourgeois, feudal, whatever the fuck you'd call it, institution of royalty, the way that's kind of positioned. Got a lot of fucking chunky boy thoughts about that. Yeah, loads of chunky boy thoughts. Yeah. To clarify, we wanted to go straight into Shrek 3 this time round. We will be doing the same in a part two of Shrek the Third, followed by a titillating all-in-one cues and reviews minisode. So do join us for that. And do send us your thoughts, heckles, comments. Accusations, quite frankly. At come over here underscore. Or you can write to us via pigeon. I have to say it. <laughs> <laughs> You can rent a pigeon. Why not, Zarina, okay? <laughs> I'm sure you can rent a pigeon. Hire a pigeon, absolutely. Do not buy a pigeon. That's a poor investment (laughs) true my eyes twitching you've made my eye twitch (laughs) but anyway thank you and we look forward to annoying you again we are your local shrek spurts you are our shrektarian community welcome to shrekistan goodbye zarina and goodbye friends play the fucking outro goodbye seema but 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 outro Come on, give me a moment, come on, give me a moment, come on, give me a moment.